As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The race is on, and the Formula One world is starting to stir ahead of the new season with the first sight of Sergio Perez in Red Bull colours and Carlos Sainz preparing for his first Ferrari test outing. But what exactly is the status of these two drivers and their teams, and what are the prospects for two drivers perceived as having been recruited as number twos? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me with all the answers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, hello, hello, Sweden. You were just telling us about your various shipping challenges as you attempt to accumulate an ever bigger, ever bigger library. So, are you are you on the wrong end of Brexit? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, the customs charges of uh, the, they're, they're ex- extremely expensive <laughs> at the moment. Um, some of the stuff is sort of taken care of, like if you book, especially if you buy it through like. Um, like so some, a lot of stuff I bought from eBay, for example, and there's some stuff there that they sort of basically it t- takes care of itself. Like you pay it in the shipping charge. Other stuff I've had some um, uh, some very confusing letters that have arrived since then from the Swedish customs authority outlining how much I need to pay and why. And it's often uh, basically twice as much as I've paid for <laughs> for the book, or sometimes it's more expensive than the cost of the book in the shipping itself. So I need a slightly more efficient system, but I'm enjoying piecing together the 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 the, the library. Once everything finally arrives, I think pe- I've, I've had things sort of trickling through so far, and I think the last few things are coming over in the next week or two. I should have maybe twelve or fifteen books, uh, which is the you know it's 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 not a, it's not enough, but it's the start of a it's, it's the start of a collection at the very least. Well, that's that's laudable, and you can't put a price on knowledge, can you? Why, why should you? No, the why customs should you do agency that? can. Oh, that's fair. Yes, uh, they've, they've certainly done that. And uh, also joining us, Mark Hughes, of course, a uh, an award winning author of motorsport books or motorsport book, or as you'd probably say, book or something. I, 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 I'm quite master the language. <laughs> well, it's it's double O is ooh, um, otherwise it would be you. 
Um, but uh, you're not alone in that. It, it seems to be most of uh, Southern England talk like that. But yeah, um, I think I've got rather more than 15 books. And um, I think uh, the with the ones in the... Uh, in the loft, I, I, I worry about them landing on top of me when I'm asleep one one night. But because um, it, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure they won't because um, the, the floor is properly reinforced. But yeah, they're very heavy books. Yeah, you don't want uh, a decade's worth of autocourses landing on your head when you're uh, <laughs> when you're not expecting it. That's uh, that. Uh, I know I like a weighty read, but that sort of thing is just uh, just uh, not right. But anyway, we're not going to be doing much reading on this podcast because the the format doesn't really work. It's all about audio, but we are going to be talking plenty about Formula One drivers. So Scott Sergio Perez, he's been at Red Bull's Milton Keynes base recently, settling into his new team. He's one of the the putative number twos heading into the season, the the newcomers at team. So, what have we learned about his approach so far? Uh, I think we've learned that he is very, very aware of the magnitude of this opportunity and what it represents, and sort of therefore how much he needs to throw himself into it. Um, I thought it was quite uh, amusing, but also a pretty fitting comparison when he said that he felt like a dog coming into a new family. With uh, sort of how everything's changed, obviously, what is it, seven years, I think, across Force India and Racing Point. Um, and there's a lot to there's a lot to get used to. And we saw that, um, you know, Pierre Gasly, for example, in his first year in the Red Bull, I think he'd, I never, I felt like he never really recovered from the, the shunts in preseason testing. Um, and he just sort of ended up, uh, I guess, to continue that dog analogy, chasing his tail for the first sort of half of the 2019 season. And what Perez is sort of aware of is uh, he has to hit the ground running, not just because uh, not just because of what's befalling his predecessors, but because obviously he needs to be a part of the Red Bull Championship Challenge. And I think he knows that the only way to keep that drive beyond just one year is to really, really be the the the, the the Max Verstappen support at that Red Bull really need him to be. But he has less preparation time than any Red Bull driver has had before him. He's got one and a half days in the car because testing's only three days this year. So he's properly trying to fast track that process. So he's it, there's obviously exemptions for for elite athletes in in going over to the UK at the moment in the pandemic. And Red Bull have been able to sort of get him in on that that basis because he's had engineering meetings. He's had, I think, two days in the in the simulator. Uh, and he's already asking questions. He's already putting ideas in, in place. He's obviously got a certain way of working as well. And I think the idea is that every possible thing he can do at the moment to to just be as ready as possible for preseason, he is doing because um, this is an enormous chance for him. But also, it's a, it's an enormous challenge as well. Yeah, it's. <laughs> So I like the uh, the metaphor of the dog with a, with a new home. That's uh, just generates the image of him just sort of running around the Milton Keynes base, over excitedly jumping at people, which is uh, perhaps not the the impression he wanted to to convey. But I I, I, do, I like the fact that he's he he realizes that this this is on him to make this work. He's not going to let other things outside factors. Play. He's going to go in there and say, I'm going to make sure that I make this team my own for for the long term i was quite in, impressed by that what what do you make of it mark and does baxter the dog have anything to say obviously he will uh, <laughs> he will know all about the dog's perspective yeah uh, baxter was wagging his tail at the mention of sergio perez so he's obviously uh, he recognized a kindred kindred spirit um if i think if he's wise and i'm sure he is uh, sergio will be sort of keeping his powder dry in terms of um you know making any statements um because he he needs to see just 
where he stacks up to max and where he needs to um, look, you know, find find performance himself um, with a, a a very different type of car to that which he's been driving, um, and he can't just go in there and 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 make it his team and push max out. That just isn't going to happen when the incumbent is at the level of Max. He can only try to assimilate himself in, into that environment. But he, although he's, as Scott said, he's got um, not very much preparation, he does go in there in a position far stronger than those of a junior driver because he does so as an established driver of a certain high reputation. And he probably will be treated slightly differently because of that, even just subconsciously um, on the part of the people at Red Bull. Um, all he said so far are what his ambitions are, the exciting part of finally being in what's hopefully a, a front-rank car. and He's, he's going to have to skirt around the, that, that issue of, 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 of the, the support driver question and, and just make progress on his own terms. Um, his strengths that we've seen over the years are his tyre usage. That's his biggest strength. And there are going to be plenty of races where that is the defining factor and in, in where... Um, how competitive you are in the race, not not your raw pace. Um, and in those races, he, there's nothing to suggest he, he won't be able to be operating at somewhere around the same level as Max. But on the on the races where it's all about pushing to, um, and the tyres are allowing you to do that, then he's, he's got a bigger challenge. Um, there will, I'm sure there will be days where he just can't, he can't get close to Verstappen and he needs to lo- not let that way too heavily upon him and that's where he should be much stronger than a young driver and just mentally shrugging that aside and then just bouncing back I'd love to know what in a quiet moment is going on in his mind when he thinks about the challenge that's ahead of him because Formula 1 drivers will always back themselves racing drivers will that's just the nature of them but also drivers at this level they have a pretty good idea of the relative level of the guys around them and and Verstappen will be one of those ones everyone looks at and thinks yeah he's a a serious driver so I, I wonder I wonder if those two sides, Scott, are kind of at war in him that he thinks, yeah, I'm going to back myself to be brilliant, but actually Max is, is, is pretty good. I guess he can settle on a happy medium and think he doesn't actually need to be as quick as Max over a single lap, but he does have a number of, well, a very large number of great strengths on his own. If he does his own thing and plays to his own strengths, he probably thinks at worst he's going to come out pretty well. Well, there's got to be... There's got to be a benefit to knowing that you're going there to be that support act. You know, Red Bull hasn't signed Perez to beat Verstappen, has it? He has to be better than Alex Albon. And on the evidence of 16 of the 17 races last year, you've got to say that Perez is going to go in and do a better job than Albon did. So the only one I think that Albon did the job he's supposed to do was in Abu Dhabi. And by then it was too little too late. And so, so that has to reduce some of the pressure because Perez knows he needs to get near Verstappen. He need, doesn't need to beat him. And that is obviously still a huge challenge in itself, especially with the lack of preparation and how different everything will be. Um, but I think that is achievable. And I think Perez is a sort as well that he will benefit from a slightly different frame of mind to, say, an Albon or a Gasly who whether you, it's not necessarily the folly of youth or, or, or anything like that, but they... They're seeing themselves at the beginning of the career and it's a bit like uh, sort of, I don't want to say overconfidence, but just sort of an assumption maybe that things are going to work out because, you know, they're they're megastars, young drivers, hot shots. They've been signed for a reason. They're going to have a really long career. Perez is going there knowing this is his one chance. 
I don't think there's going to be any trace of complacency in the way that Perez goes about his job because this is what he has been waiting for and this is what he's been working towards and he was on the brink of a sabbatical in 2021, not racing at all. And I would imagine he'd have got back on the grid in 2022, but there would have an extension of a sabbatical is that risk that you never come back. Well, Perez has now gone from having nothing to having one of the most coveted drives in Formula One. I cannot believe that... I cannot believe that there is a greater motivation for any driver. If you look at any other driver on the grid, does anyone have a bigger motivation than Perez to do a good job this year? I don't don't think they do. He's in quite a nice situation, isn't he? Because whatever happens, he's a Grand Prix winner. He's had a decade in Formula One, built a good reputation. He's He's a very accomplished Grand Prix driver, whatever happens. And this has come at the right time, hasn't it, Mark? Because he's kind of in a sweet spot, isn't he? Because he's he's not an old driver. He's not a young driver. He should be in that peak. So in many ways, this opportunity has come along at quite a good moment for him. And we have seen drivers who have got into strong seats relatively late who've really, really made it work for them because they are in that sweet spot of experience against still being kind of young enough to have quite a long future. Yeah, um, thinking back to history, it's a bit like when um, Patrese could his second um, sort of Indian summer um, in 91. And uh, he, you know, he'd been around for a while and then suddenly he was in the right place at the right time. And the, the Williams came good that year. And um, yeah, there he was going bat to bat with Nigel Mansell. And, um, you know, it, it, he just suddenly flowered again. Um, and we saw the the driver that he looked as though he was um, going to be, but n- never had quite delivered up until that time. And so and people forget that in the passive car against Mansell, he was really strong. Yeah, exactly. 92, but in yeah. the passive car, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. He was right there. And we, we've seen these sort of things, you um, know, sort of late, late blooming um, drivers that combine a, a basic, good underlying pace with um, a lot of experience and then it, the, the circumstances come together to put them in a good car and they really flower. And there's no reason why Sergio can't do that. And by flower, I mean achieve the, his own potential in, um, in, in a top car, um, which is not the same as um, going and blowing Max Verstappen into the weeds because that just isn't going to happen. And I think even even he going back to your um, speculating what might be going on on his head. I don't think even he would be thinking I'm going to go in there and, and wipe the floor with with Max Verstappen. I think you've got to be realistic. And if you're not realistic and you you go in there with those um, expectations, it just it's just going to make the the, the 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 fall even harder when when that doesn't happen and you're more difficult to pick yourself up from. Whereas if you go in with a um, a, a more a reasonable level of expectation and um, uh, a, a determination to absolutely maximise your own performance, and just uh, you know try try and make that work for you. Uh, and it's 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 much uh, much easier to maintain that um, than to 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 come crashing down from an, an unrealistically high level. He's an interesting driver, Perez, because he's shown that capacity to really focus on the race setup and make it work for him, and do that consistently. And I'd actually argue that in this era of F1. Now, there was a time when the old focus on the race setup, sacrifice qualifying, could work really well for you. But you actually don't see many drivers in recent times actually properly make that work. Normally, it's just a bit of an excuse, isn't it? It's like, oh, I concentrate more on the race. And it's just a, it just covers up the fact that their qualifying pace isn't there. But Perez is, is the one guy who has that extreme skill set to really make that work 
consistently. We do see other drivers who are strong on it. I don't want to say he's the only one who can do it, but I think that perhaps allows him to get his head around the concept that qualifying versus Verstappen isn't the key battle. It's actually qualifying versus the other drivers and where he makes sure he starts off the races that will be critical to him succeeding or failing, probably. As long as he's thereabouts, he'll be able to turn in those those race drives. Isn't that be the, the way he's looking at it? Yeah, I'm sure it is. And um, he's fully capable of doing that. And if that car is um, any anywhere near uh, uh, you know, the, the pace of um, the Mercedes at the front, um, you know, that he needs to be he needs to be sticking it on the the first two rows every time, um, even if it's slower than Verstappen. That's that's where it needs to be, and um, he's fully capable of doing that. Yeah, I think one of the things to um, bear in mind always with this sort of question of how Perez will do versus his predecessors is it, it isn't just a like for like uh, exchange, and I think this sort of tends to get overlooked. People just sort of see see it as, oh, well, Red Bull have just picked another driver off the conveyor belt and they're going to put them in against Verstappen and why should it be any different? It's like, well, well, each driver is different and Albon's problem against Verstappen wasn't the same as Gasly's problem against Verstappen. It just manifested itself in a way that was quite similar in terms of the end result. And Perez is, as we've sort of discussed there in quite a lot of detail, is such an experienced, accomplished and sensible person and driver in a completely different phase of his career that you can't, you can't, it's almost like you can't use Gasly and Albon as any kind of reference for how Perez will do at Red Bull beyond saying he will struggle to beat Verstappen over one lap. So when people sort of hear us talk about it quite optimistically about Perez's chances, that isn't because it's just, oh, well, we're not saying Perez is going to do a better job than the last two just because, you know there are reasons for it. He he is a he's a very different proposition, which is why Red Bull picked him. They they I don't think they'd have changed uh, driver for 2021 to just put another sort of decent but not prodigious Red Bull Junior in the car. I think if they'd had uh, I think if they'd had a first year driver in Alpha Tauri with Gasly who was okay but not special. They wouldn't have put him in the car instead of Albon. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. It's just because Perez offered something genuinely different that actually looks like he can be the driver they need him to be. Well, on that topic, Mark, Red Bull's got a bit of a reputation as a difficult place for the, the second driver in recent times with Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon's struggles. And then you can even look back to the, the days of Mark Webber being alongside Sebastian Vettel. Lots of criticism for the team uh, over the years. How legitimate do you think that criticism is? Not fully legitimate. Um, the, the the first order problems for both Gasly and Albon were that the car was difficult but fast. It had very high limits but unpredictable behaviour, and that the, and that the team's lead driver Stappen could deal with this far more effectively than they. So that by nature, that that the traits of that car exaggerated the gap between Verstappen and and, and those guys. Um, that's by far the overwhelming reason for their difficulties. And now, yeah, the, the, the team will inevitably center itself around the driver that's best accessing the potential of the car when the other one isn't. That, that, that's just obvious. That's just competitive dynamics. That, and that's unrelated to any Red Bull management, and I mean the corporate side, not the racing side, desire to see Max as this young, dynamic personification of the image that Red Bull likes to market. It's a simple racing team, and that's its beauty. But the, the simple racing teams aren't 
often are, are not that tolerant of lack of performance. And if we think back to Ricciardo against Verstappen or even Weber against Vettel, the performance deficit was small and sometimes not even there. I mean, it wasn't unheard of for Ricciardo to be faster than Verstappen or for Weber to be faster than, than Vettel. It, it used to happen. Because they were able to compete with the corporate favoured driver, let's say, then, yeah, there was some antagonism sometimes. Um, you know, Weber's not bad for a number two, etc. And, and Ricciardo's resentment of having to share the blame of Baku 2018. It's one of the key factors which um, decided them to leave there. But I don't think if you ask them, either Weber or Ricciardo would say they suffered any significant performance compromise. Yeah, when push came to shove and they were fighting over hundredths of a second, the favoured one might might become apparent. But the performance deficits of Gasly and Albon were of a completely different order to that. Yeah, they were just, just far too big, weren't they? And ultimately, while sometimes there can be external factors that go against drivers, fundamentally it is down to the driver to deliver and perform. That's their job and their responsibility. And generally the drivers who will blame every possible external factor and blame the team etc are not the ones who who thrive and you see the same problems repeating themselves i'm not necessarily saying that that alban was a problem with his approach because by all accounts his approach was good he just couldn't quite string it all together so yeah an, an interesting an interesting situation for them but scott do you think red bull will be aware of this uh this kind of bad reputation and that, that they actually as a kind of supplementary thing, obviously they want Perez to do well competitively, but also it's a good chance for that team to show that actually, yeah, we do run two cars. We are a two-car team. We want a proper, strong two-car team, and that's why we've brought Checo in. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not been lost on Red Bull that there is this theory that they they deliberately screw over the second driver or that they prioritise the first driver in a way that sort of tangentially sort of uh, screws over the second driver, basically. It's almost like a secondary consequence of their preference and focus on Verstappen but the, they wouldn't pump this much money into Formula One just for the sake of one driver finishing third in the championship and th- you know I sort of uh, I wrote something uh, on the website uh, about sort of Max Verstappen's supposed driving style or this sort of myth around his the way he drives um, which is that uh, the reason that his teammates have struggled is because Red Bull builds this car for Max and that kind of is so oversimplistic because it suggests that Max Verstappen wants a car that's three or four tenths slower than a Mercedes and likes to spin at slow speed, uh, which I'm pretty sure Max doesn't want that. Um, so th- there might well be something in it. It might well be that the way he's pushing them and development-wise is leading them towards a car that they can't quite master. But I don't think it's that. I think it's... Um, and I think Red Bull know this as well. And I think the internal view is that Verstappen's just so good that he makes a, an imperfect car look better. He takes a car that is uh, that is good enough for a distant third behind the Mercedes and he makes it something that might split the Mercedes on occasion. You know, he had a few front row starts last year and then that pole position in Abu Dhabi. So he's just a guy who you give him a good car, a bad car, a great car or a capricious car and he will get the most out of it. And I think Red Bull know that. So what I think they're going to be looking for with Perez is a driver coming in and says, look, this isn't just because we're putting one guy on the platform. This guy's our megastar, but the second car is a tenth off or a tenth and a half off. And in the races, Verstappen's the one who's chasing the Mercedes or beating the Mercedes, but Perez is the rear gunner. Look at him. He's always finishing third or fourth. They didn't have that last year. They didn't have that in 2019. When they have that, 
they will finally have some tangible evidence that shows that they're a racing team that actually cares about operating as a racing team rather than, you know, to, to boost Max Verstappen's profile or ego. And ultimately, Perez is a driver who's got an enormously prolific record of, at the end of races, having got a very good result out, out of the machinery available to him. I see no reason why that shouldn't repeat itself. As he said, coming back to that that dog metaphor, he was at Racing Point, Aston Martin, Force India, call it what you will, for a very, very long time. So it's a, a different environment. But I think there's a driver in there who's got a very, very clear understanding of how he likes to do things. That's probably the, the big advantage that we've touched on compared to the Albans and the Gaslies. When you're uh, in your early 30s, you'll have a much better grasp of, how, of the best way to get the maximum from yourself than if you're five, six, seven years younger. So that's very, very, uh, very positive uh, for him in, in that regard. We should probably move on, Scott, to another driver who's settling in at a top team in Carlos Sainz. How similar do you see his and Perez's positions in terms of the way the team perceives them fitting into the driver lineup? Uh, slightly different, I think, just because um, I think Sainz is sort of looking at that as, okay, uh, I need to obviously stamp my authority on this team, but this is something that I should have for the medium term. Whereas Perez goes into an environment where I think he needs to do the work to make this more than just a one-year thing. Uh, but in terms of what they need to do from a in, inside the team, I know that Carlos doesn't believe this himself, but he is there basically as the support act to Leclerc. And Ferrari probably expect him to be able to be perfectly capable of picking up the slack when Leclerc's um, not on it or even maybe on his day signs would just be the better driver but I don't think I don't think signs has been uh, signed as an equal status driver in terms of uh, the the workload that, uh, that they'll be carrying for, for the team I'm I'm not saying that Ferrari's gonna be um, finding ways to sort of keep signs behind Leclerc or anything like that but I think it's fair to say that the onus is on Leclerc to lead the team, even if it's in a de facto leadership role rather than a you know a specific number one, number two situation. There's a number of things that make it fairly clear how Ferrari perceive it. The first is that ultimately Leclerc is the guy who's on the the big money contract, the very very long term deal that he signed after he made that very strong start at Ferrari. So that that kind of shows they're they're really getting behind him, and the fact that they've dispensed of Sebastian Vettel to focus on on Leclerc as he's seen as the future confirms that plus I mean Mark you were part of that as, as well the 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 Christmas uh, lunch the remote socially distant zoom version that we did uh, this year the the Ferrari Christmas lunch with Matteo Bonotto when he was taught when he was asked about science's status he kept talking about constructors championship points etc how well he'll work with Leclerc he said yeah they're equal status and they sort of are but I think it was very clear from reading between the lines of what Bonotto said that the unstated fact was, yeah, we see Sainz as a, as a really good driver to have, but he's not quite going to be Charles Leclerc and he'll, he'll drive around helpfully sort of just behind him, picking up picking up the results. Did you see the same thing or have, have I imagined that? No, you haven't imagined that. And, and um, talking to people there before that, um, the, the, the expectation is, is, is that Sainz is a support driver. That... It's not contractually that, and science in no way would um, accept that he's gone there as a support, but that 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 is the reason he has been signed. They, they think he's the best um, support driver they could possibly get. Um, that doesn't mean to say that that 
order is uh, predestined, and um, that's I think it's slightly different situation than the the, the Perez Verstappen one because I think um, I think it's more realistic for um, Sainz to actually be competing on raw pace with Leclerc than it is Perez with Max. Um, I think the the, the Sainz Leclerc difference in pace will be smaller than that between um, Verstappen and Perez, but he still has the same sort of task, which is to work his way into the team, to get comfortable there quickly, to form his own way of working without causing upheaval um, so that his part of the team supports him rather than treats him as a support to the other driver, if you see what I mean, if you see that distinction. Um, and he's he's fully capable of doing that. Um, so he goes in there a little bit under the radar, really. Um, and I think um, one of the reasons they didn't, sign Ricardo rather than 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 science is that they weren't as confident that um he would slot into that role he was um you know perceived to be uh, uh potentially problematic problematical in that he would he'd be at much the same performance level of as, as Leclerc and science wasn't perceived to be quite at, at that performance level but I'm not sure that that's accurate um so that's that's a really really intriguing situation. Um, but to do it to to pull it off, um, Carlos has got to do it without, as I say, creating upheaval in the rest of the team. And that's that's quite a tricky thing to pull off when if if you can get um, in in the same sort of performance um, bracket as Leclerc, which isn't a given, but it's it, I see it as a as as feasible. What do you think about? Um sort of this I guess the environment science is going into in terms of who he's replacing because at Red Bull for example and this is a sort of point I made Perez has got to be enthused by the prospect of okay well I'm going in there and replacing someone who didn't do a great job so it's not really big shoes to fill at, at, at Red Bull and that's sort of why Perez has this opportunity and I know that Sebastian Vettel didn't have the greatest farewell years at Ferrari but he was still you know, he's still a four-time world champion who I think I think it was pretty clear by the end of the year was still very, very, very much well-liked and respected by his side of the garage at the very least. You know, he gave that team an awful lot. He was always very good at sort of building that team around him, wasn't he? Or isn't he? He's, he's not left Formula 1. Um, does that... What, what, what do you reckon that does? I don't... Like, I don't... You guys obviously saw what Vettel was like at, at Red Bull, the transition to Ferrari. That was before my time. So he's... The signs have a little bit more sort of to do there to sort of win the team over internally. Um. Yeah. Well. Yes. Because, as you say, he was he was enormously liked and respected by the the the, the people on the ground. Um. But Carlos's uh, personality is and intelligence is such that he won't. I don't think have a, any any difficulty in doing that. I don't think. Um. I think. When you combine that with the level of performances he will be given them, I don't think he will have any any problem establishing himself there in in that sense. Um, the, the the difficulty for Seb when he when he went there wasn't the people on the ground; it was the the management. In that he'd been the people that had wanted him there, the people that had recruited him were gone by the time he arrived, and I think that he never felt at that team was really built around him the, the the way he was trying to get it to be he was it was he, he had the people around him on the car very much on side but 
I don't think he ever felt he was probably back, pro- properly backed up by the um, by the senior management. Sainz has also had a good learning experience in terms of how to try and establish yourself on firm footing in a team, partly through not quite entirely getting it right in the past. Obviously, when he was with Verstappen at, at Toro Rosso at times, that dynamic got a little bit political with the team. Actually, those two get on well, but in terms of the, the kind of two young drivers trying to kind of make it their team, it didn't always uh, work, should we say. And in fact, the the kind of some of the political games that, that Sainz played partly to get out into the Renault seat because he wanted to... Uh, to move on, played a part in him not getting that that Red Bull seat in in 2019 that Gasly got because that they didn't entirely like the way he kind of forced his way out. So I think Science has been able to build up experience of how to approach things, and I'm sure in his mind he'll be thinking he needs to go in there and turn it round and make it his team. But again, it ultimately comes down to item one on the wish list for achieving that is performance. That's how you do it. Teams don't preordain that this driver who's four tenths slower than the other one is going to be the number one driver, at least not on a long-term basis. Sometimes you get a little crossover where there's an established superstar and a young gun, and it takes a little bit of time for that to switch. But teams back the driver that that does, that works for them. So I'll be very interested to see what, what science produces because he doesn't have quite the same timeline as Perez, but he's still only confirmed for two years. So ultimately... This season is going to be a very, very large part in whether he gets a new deal. And he'll probably be thinking, if I perform well over two-thirds of the season, by the time I get to September, I could have a new longer-term deal signed that reflects my my status in the team. So there's a great career-making opportunity here for science, and I think he'll, he'll approach it very well. Mark, we've touched on a few things there about number one and number two drivers, and, and it is often mischaracterised and misunderstood, isn't it? We talk about Perez and science as number twos. What do we really mean and what do teams really think about in terms of how explicit this this dynamic is? Because it's a it's a curious kind of alchemy, isn't it, making a uh, turning two drivers into a good driver partnership? Yeah, it, it is very much. Um Mercedes- and often about as successful as alchemy as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it goes wrong just as often as it goes right. Um Mercedes, Red Bull and- your, your alchemy hit rates are impressive. What's that? <laughs> you said it goes wrong as often it goes as it goes right. That's quite impressive for alchemy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm just picking holes in your metaphor now. I've just right. got this image of you saying, oh, only 50% of it turns to gold. Damn. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, that didn't quite work. Maybe sub that out. Um, Mercedes. Oh, that's staying in. All right, okay. <laughs> Mercedes, Red Bull and Ferrari... They've got three certified gold superstar status drivers leading their teams in Hamilton, Verstappen, and Leclerc. So anyone in the same car is in for a very challenging ride just through the relentless pummeling performance of those guys. They're extraordinary. So from the team's perspective, there is not the expectation of the other guy to match the talisman. They want them close. They want them close enough to put some pressure on probably, but they're not going to be shaking their heads and asking where the rest of the performance is, so long as they're quick enough to form a support role, which is what Bottas has done at Mercedes admirably for the the last few seasons. It doesn't mean their career is finished just because they don't quite match up to the other guy over a few seasons, but from the perspective of the driver, they don't have to and they shouldn't accept that. It's probably a bit different for Bottas now in that he's spent four seasons seeing close up how Hamilton can do some things that he just can't. But he wouldn't have thought that going in. 
Sainz will be going in absolutely certain in his mind that he can match Leclerc and thereby change his role within the team. And he might be able to do so, let's see. But Perez, it's maybe more difficult to hold on to that belief. I'm not sure. Then you have the case of Ocon, just completely outshaded by Ricardo and now up against Alonso. If he eclipses Alonso, the perception will be that Alonso is not the driver he was because, you know, Ricardo could handle him and Alonso didn't. That wouldn't have been the case had Ocon matched Ricciardo. But Ocon, even if he's eclipsed by Alonso, can still carve out a role for himself as long as he's challenging and pushing Alonso. It isn't that you lose any future prospects of staying in F1 after being convincingly defeated by one of the superstars, but it does tend to mean you're no longer seen as a potential number one recruitment for a top team. So if Max Verstappen left Red Bull, they wouldn't be looking at Bottas or Ocon as his replacement. They just wouldn't. Because it's already been established they're not quite the cutting edge. Ocon could recover from that status, but it would have to be by some brilliant performances. Um, Bottas has been in that role too long um, to be able to do that. If, if Hamilton retired, Mercedes wouldn't just promote Bottas. They'd be looking for a potential Hamilton level of driver of a Stappen or maybe a Russell. So there are only three or four very special performers. Anyone outside up of there going against any of those three or four can do so with the intention and belief that they can force their way into that status by competing on level terms with them. But the odds are they won't quite do it. Um, but if any one of the current hopefuls um, can do it, it, I would say it's science, um, possibly Lando Norris. Um, Lando Norris has got a very high bar there in uh, Ricardo, but he's, he's got the advantage of being the incumbent driver, so he's got half a chance of doing it as well. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a funny sort of it, it can switch very quickly that status, but it um, also it those superstars are the superstars not just um, by chance or by fashion. It's it's because they've delivered and delivered and delivered time after time after time. That number two designation is sort of only really a sort of one step removed from this uh, from the belief of sort of like when people get characterized as F1 rejects, like when they when they leave Formula One after a few years or they turn up in another category. And I remember when I covered Formula E, speaking to guys like um Sebastian Buemi and Lucas Degrassi and to sort of about this, you know, the term F1 reject, because that is what how people see it. And like it, the frustration among that kind of driver with, with that label is quite high because it's like the it's such an overly simplistic way of looking at it. Obviously, yes, technically it's correct because they 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 were rejected by uh, the, either the team that they were with or <clears throat> a team they could potentially have joined. The number two label is sort of like a slightly more polite uh, ex- and currently existing version of that because it just makes people take you less seriously. Like it's uh, not not in within formula 1 necessarily not and probably not within your team but the external perception of you as a driver is less serious if for example um alpine had signed valtteri bottas for 2021 should we say instead of fernando alonso actually in practical terms wouldn't that have been like that would have been a brilliant signing for for alpine you, you would not no no one could s- genuinely argue that alpine doesn't have a great driver or an asset in signing someone like Bottas the external perception is Bottas oh he's just a number two that's all he is that's all he'll ever be he can't lead a team because look at look at what's happened to him at Mercedes he's, he's never even managed a title challenge against Hamilton and then people will compare it 
to Nico Rosberg versus Hamilton and they'll say well, Rosberg was able to get under his skin and play mind games and win a title. So Rosberg is clearly much better than Bottas. But that doesn't factor in the fact that Hamilton now is a much better driver than he was in 2016 and he was a much more sort of um, stronger personality mentally than he was against Rosberg in 2016. So there's all these sorts of layers. And what Mark said about this being such a... Uh, such a rare group of people who are at that level in Formula One, your Hamiltons, your Leclerc's, your Verstappen's. I think people underestimate just how high that level is. And a guy like Bottas, or if it can be this year, Ocon against Alonso or Norris against Ricardo, whatever, getting close to that on a regular basis and occasionally beating them, that's not a failure. That's actually a really, really good effort in the circumstances. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to look at teammate battles as zero-sum games, isn't there? That there's one driver who wins it all and the other loses it all and is a failure. And it's just a stupid way of looking at it. I completely agree with your Bottas comparison. If he was dropped by Mercedes, then he'd be a great signing for a number of teams on the grid. You wouldn't be signing a, a a reject failed driver. You'd be signing a very, very accomplished one. So... Yeah, I think it's it's often a mistake to look at it that way. And you have to look at the reasons for the for who performs better and also the size of the gap. Because, for example, you'll see people saying that Bottas is terrible against Hamilton, but he out-qualifies him about a third of the time, and the average deficit's pretty respectable. But then you see people defending how harsh Red Bull are on Alvin Ogazi, and then you look at a gap there that's just absolutely multiples bigger than the, the one Bottas faces. So you need to look at and understand what the reason for, for it is. And Ricardo Norris that, that Mark mentioned is a good example because I've seen people say, well, if Ricardo outperforms Norris this season, that's Norris's seat, the F1 career over. And you sort of think, well, no, it's not because he could be just behind Ricardo and that would be a good level of performance. Okay, he, he'll he want to go in and and assert himself as the number one and that would potentially elevate Norris to, to, to that sort of next level. But there's a lot of very, very good drivers and just this idea that any driver who falls out of F1 because they haven't got a seat, as as in some way failed or shown not to be very good, is is often wrong. Yeah, there are, there have been in the past. We don't tend to see them so much now. Really, really out of their depth drivers who've who failed. But you know, nowadays, particularly with the super license criteria, even the weakest drivers are very good. So yeah, people have to be a little bit more reasonable, should we say? And certainly, when we're talking about number one and number two drivers, usually it's it's derived from their performance level, and it can it can swap. It's uh, it's, it's not preordained in that way. Before we finish, Scott, you have a promise to deliver on, don't you? Can you? <laughs> I can. Yeah, you asked me. Uh, well, you questioned the um, uh, the existence or the ongoing ex- existence of Scott's people um, on a recent podcast, and the idea was, uh, or the challenge was, could we come up with uh, with a way to to revive that? And I take obviously full responsibility for my creation, uh, basically dying uh, in the in it was a victim of the crazy season that we had last year and the fact that we sort of moved away from that. But I can say that we are back with a vengeance because I do have a topic. Uh, and it's uh, it's one that the two of you can uh, can quickly engage on now uh, or we can uh, save that for, for, for the next one. But the question I'm going to ask people, and I'll be sharing this on, uh, on Twitter um, uh, shortly after we finish recording so um, have a have a look out at that I'm at smitchellf1 on, on Twitter my question is because as you 
uh, we we discussed before we started recording and sort of briefly touched on, I think, at the start of this podcast with my uh, customs drama. I've been reading a lot, um, lot more from F1 history uh, recently, and I'm trying to read a lot more. And there are some amazing books on drivers, some of them sort of autobiographical, some of them just biographical. So my question, uh, which we might need to set some criteria or conditions around, is if you could be basically the uh, the ghostwriter for any driver from history for their autobiography. So that's sitting down with them, talking through the stuff, like listening to the stories other people might not have heard, um, finding out the really gory details from things that sort of only ever really touched the surface on in the public eye. Who would that driver be? So my, my thinking with conditions and stuff like that is what about, you know, obviously drivers who um, sadly lost their lives sort of early in their career or, or subsequently. Um, do you draw the line at, okay, you could have spoken to them sort of shortly before their death and sort of like, you know, charted their life and career up to that point. Do we let people go completely mad with it and say, let's say Ayrton Senna never died at Imola in uh, 1994 and was around today. Could a driver pick them and recount the last um, 26 years? That 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 sort of thing. What what do you think? Do we make it a crea- creative free for all, or do we imply a little bit of logical restriction on it? I think a bit of a free for all, as long as you give a good reason. Yeah. Okay. And that so and that you- reason and that reason, if it's a lost driver, cannot be just because it would be great to hear them because they're lost and they can't talk. But you know, what what's the thing you want to get under the skin of with that understanding that driver? I, I will I will also just say very quickly uh, I'm going to open this up actually to not just drivers so personalities as well because I think that's quite important and Ed you're not allowed to pick Gary Anderson because I'm hoping that sooner rather than later you actually get around to writing the Gary Anderson book itself but what do you reckon do the two of you have an early contender for who that who 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 would you ghost write the autobiography for if you could F1 driver or personality I think the most, for me, the most fascinating story of Grand Prix racing is before F1, um, in, in terms of a, a single driver, um, and it would be Robert Benoit, just because of, um, he, I mean, he had an extraordinary racing career in the, in the 1920s, but he, um, he the, the part he played in the French Resistance and um, his uh, the scrapes he got into uh, have only ever sort of been... I mean, Joe Sayward did a a, a book on, on the the Grand Prix saboteurs, but by definition, a lot of the, a lot of the the escapades um, nobody survived to to give details of, and it would be fascinating to know exactly what went down there. Um, so that that would be my choice. But if it had to be from F one time, so nineteen fifty onwards, or forty eight onwards, um, yeah. I, 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 I guess it would be. I guess it would be Fangio, um, just because there's something mystical about Fangio, his, his status, and um, I just, I just like to sort of get beneath the, 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 that 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 myth and know more about the man because um, certainly in the English language, because Fangio didn't speak English, um, it, it was never, you know, you don't really get any um, very very full picture of the of the man other than. That he was very uh, graceful um, and, and um, generous spirited, but that that was really about it. So yeah, I'd, I'd really like to, uh, to if I was able to to, 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 to be able to go in a bit of depth there. What about you, Ed? I'm not necessarily quite ready to commit to one, but there's sort of two different types I think of. One is the 
the kind of less known drivers on a similar basis to to what Mark said about Fangio, someone like Jim Clark, who no, there's lots about his driving. There's bits and pieces of him, but I don't feel I've got a really in-depth handle on his his craft. Yes, there's there's books and that kind of thing. And so you've got a reasonable understanding, but I'd really like to understand more about how he perceived what he did and the way he did it. There's tantalizing bits and pieces about that, but really, really understanding it and the mindset and the the relationship with with Chapman and that kind of thing could be really interesting. The other ones that actually spring to mind are more the what I'd call the kind of nearly drivers, the ones who on their day were capable of amazing things, kind of like some of the ones we've been talking about today, but who couldn't sustain it. So you get your drivers thinking back, essentially drivers like Heinz Harold Frentzen, astonishing on their day, but overall didn't quite come together. Or you sort of David Coulthard, Ralph Schumacher, you know, people like this, drivers who I don't think we've got quite as much understanding of maybe DC we have got a reasonable grasp of, but that sort of driver, because I think it's an understanding those ones that you also understand the absolute outright greatest view as well, because these guys are, are very, very good. So those are my sort of basic ballpark uh, suggestions. I haven't quite committed to one. I'm looking but... forward to then the um, the Edge Straw written Roman Grosjean autobiography coming out in uh, a few years' time. That's got well, to be Well, Gro- Grosjean would, would be fascinating because an, another wonderful driver, interesting character engaging sort of character as well and someone who's done a lot of self-analysis i think he'd be really interesting mm, i'm sure there will be a roman grosjean book at, at, at some point so i look forward to i look forward to reading that the other one of course yeah, that's, he- that, that sounds like i was just that sounds like we were hinting i was writing what i'm not that mm. that's a plug for, for whoever else is doing it i just <laughs> think it's pitch, genuinely though. fascinating hopefully roman's <laughs> listening the other the other well, i am available the other one um you scott you talk about if they died or, or, or imagine if they hadn't died, um, what about the guys that were not sure if they died or not? Um, it's Colin Chapman. So we could, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to do that one. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's a, that's a fair point. That is, this is what I mean. Creativity knows no bounds with this. That's the beauty of Scots people. You can get your plane ticket off to South America. That's the uh, that's the legend, isn't it? I think uh, I think sadly it is only a legend. But uh, well, I, I we I'm sure I saw him in Brazil in a restaurant two years ago. But you know, he didn't he didn't answer to his name. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So how, how can people tell you what they think, Scott? Yeah. So uh, just uh, just at me on Twitter uh, at s mitchell f one. Uh, you can uh, revive the hashtag as well, Scots people. Hashtag Scots people. That's just quite fun. Let's just you know. Uh, it's a bit of a weird time still for everybody, isn't it? So if uh, a, a little bit of light-hearted, um, a little bit of light-hearted fun might go a long way. You never know. Yeah, looking forward to seeing some of those answers, and we'll we'll discuss it uh, next week. Uh, well, thanks very much to Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell for your insights. I do urge everyone to engage on Scott's people because we want to reward Scott for his uh, his dedication for suddenly remembering all of his people for the first time in in, in some time. So let's uh, let's keep him uh, let's keep him engaged with that. Do head to the race website and don't forget the hyphen loads to read on there if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast please do and also bring back v10s our retro f1 podcast is in full swing so listen to that as well we've had a recent episode out about the 1989 french grand prix with flying latent houses and john lacy debuts and all sorts going on there that's well worth a listen even if i am on it so uh, i'm kind of self-promoting there and do check out our youtube channel as well just search for the race Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more from the race.